You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. We have um, decided to start today a sermon series called Spiritual Disciplines, and we're going to hit we're going to hit on this for the month of January. And today we're going to be looking at more specifically how to read the Bible. So I'm going to give an introduction to the series. Then I'm going to dive into Psalm chapter 19, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And then at the very end of the sermon, give some very practical ways as far as reading your Bibles. So just an intro to the series, Psalm 19, some practical ways. But let me just kind of end this intro to the series. When you look at what's happened in 2020, I think one word we can all use to describe it was distracted. I mean, think of how distracted we have been in the last 12 months. Think of how, many, how much energy we've given to political conversations, to critical race theory, to mask ordinances, to everything that makes us all squirm in our seat right now. We have given so much energy to it. We have devoted so much time, so much research, so much focus to it. I wonder how much focus, time, and energy, and discipline we have put into knowing God's Word, understanding God's Word, praying, the one another's of Scripture, where we humble ourselves, submit ourselves, throw ourselves at the mercy and the feet of one another. I think we have been lacking desperately, and I say that in general to the church, we. And I think it is time for us to really refocus, recalibrate, not allow the things of this world to distract us and to deter us from the mission. I think Jesus was the ultimate example of this as he made his way to the cross, and there was nothing absolutely nothing that was going to get in the way of him dying on the cross. He was disciplined. And so I want to call us as the elders, we want to call us to disciplines, spiritual disciplines, for they are beneficial. And I'll get more into the, into the definition of that in just a moment. I don't know if any of you back in November, watched the, uh, the pay-per-view fight between Mike Tyson and Roy Jones Jr. Um, <laughs> it was almost a complete waste of money. However, it was fascinating because if you've been watching Mike Tyson box for the last several decades, if you will, it is amazing to see that this man who was in his 50s, who hadn't boxed for like two decades, came out looking like the champ he was when he was a teenager. It was, in, it was fascinating. I went and looked at his, his workout regimen from when he was, he was in his prime, his disciplines of training. Here's what I pulled from an article. It says, Tyson's workout routine started early and focused on every aspect of the sport. First, he'd wake up at 5 a.m., go for a three-mile run. He'd return home about 6 a.m. Hold on. The fact that he can run three miles in under an hour is fascinating. I can't do that. And go back to sleep at 10 a.m. He'd wake up again, have his breakfast. Then he'd start working on boxing skills by sparring for 10 rounds. 
Afterward, he'd eat lunch before sparring more and working on boxing skills. Then the most brutal part of his routine was his calisthenics workout. And over the course of a few hours, he'd do 2,000 squats, 2,500 sit-ups, 500 dips, 500 push-ups, 500 shrugs with approximately 66-pound barbell, and then 10 minutes of neck exercises. It was, it's amazing that somebody was able to do this, but you see the fruit of his labor, if you will. The fact that he went 50 wins over his career with only six losses and multiple titles and belts, right? Just absolutely fascinating. And as impressive and beneficial as Tyson's disciplines may be, they only benefited him in the way of worldly success and wealth, right? He's a multimillionaire. He's no longer in poverty like he used to be. And now his children are being raised up in a different environment, if you will. But you know, if you listen to Tyson, especially if you listen to his pregame speeches, that the demons are still actively alive in Tyson's soul, which is why he wants to box so bad. 1 Timothy 4.8 says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Many times we talk about life being a balance of things. You know, I want to balance work, balance play, balance exercise, balance these things. And I don't think we need to think about things in terms of balance. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I want to think of in terms of a, uh, something that is springing forth from something. So spiritual disciplines are not a balance to a well-meaning life, but it is the spring from which everything flows, if that makes sense. And so because everything about us is impacted by God's Word. Our physical well-being, our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, every aspect, right? We read in the Scriptures that the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. We see in 1 Corinthians that if we do not repent and we take communion in an unworthy manner, some people have gotten sick and some have even died, Paul said. And so our groundedness in God's Word impacts everything. It flows how we conduct life, our family, our jobs. Everything is an outflow of our grounded nature in God's Word. Our spiritual disciplines, if you will. Donald Whitney, I would say probably the spiritual disciplines guru, um, has mentioned in his book, Spiritual Disciplines, that spiritual disciplines is this. They are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. I'll read it one more time. Spiritual disciplines are those practices found in Scripture that promote spiritual growth among believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are the habits of devotion and experiential Christianity that have been practiced by the people of God since biblical times. You can find that easily by a simple Google search. And he goes on to say, there are six descriptors of spiritual disciplines 
and I'll just highlight these from his book, I would recommend reading this. First is that the Bible prescribes both personal and interpersonal spiritual disciplines, meaning private disciplines, and then also corporate disciplines. Meaning it's not enough just for you to read your Bible on your own in your own private time and have your personal relationship, but it is necessary that we discipline ourselves as the corporate family to come together and read the Bible and know the Bible and pray together and evangelize together. This is not just a go do it on your own kind of thing. This is a family endeavor. Second, spiritual disciplines are activities, not attitudes. Activities, not attitudes. Bible reading, prayer, worship, stewardship. And the goal is not to just do, but to do so that we can be who God has called us to be, if that makes sense. It's not a works-based righteousness, but it's becoming like Christ in our disciplines. Third, we are to limit spiritual disciplines to things that are biblical. That is, practices taught or modeled in the Bible. And so, we have come to these disciplines which we will hit on this month. That is, the reading of our Bible, prayer, worship, stewardship, evangelism. These are clear in Scripture that we are to be disciplined in. Fourth, disciplines found in Scripture are sufficient for knowing and experiencing God and for growing in Christ-likeness. That's the aim of this. The aim of spiritual disciplines is not to make you a better person or to get you a pat on your back, but for you to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. Fifth, disciplines are practices derived from the Gospel, not divorced from the Gospel. Derived from the Gospel, not divorced from it. This idea coming from the fact that some have used the gospel as just a, hey, your ticket into heaven and your ticket from staying away from hell, but that doesn't mean you don't necessarily have to live any other certain sort of life. As long as you prayed the prayer, as long as you're in the club, as long as you're on the team, you're good to go. But the gospel is more than just having Jesus in your heart, if you will. It is life like Seth was talking about. It is who we are. It is what we do. It is becoming more like the King. Sixth and final. Spiritual disciplines are a means, not an end. Disciplines are a means and not an end. Christ-likeness is the goal of our Christian life. Disciplines are a means to that glorious end. Let that be clear. That we don't earn God's favor or happiness or get a, you know, a star on the chart because of how disciplined we are, how much we read our Bible, how much we pray. We saw Jesus rebuke the Pharisees for being like that. But the goal is, again, being like Christ. And so I want you guys to stick with us in this series. Not only just be hearers here on Sunday morning, like you're trapped in here until I'm done speaking, but to be hearers and understanders of God's Word, and then to go from this place putting things to practice. If we are disciples, if we are going to make disciples, we can't just be idle and not doing anything. And we can't just play that, well, I don't want to be a legalist card. That's enough of that. Let's actually do what the Bible is telling us to do. 
and let's be disciple makers. And so that is the challenge. So today, talking about reading the Bible, how to read the Bible. And since I don't have really a chapter and verse in the scripture that says, and in this book, we're going to teach you how to read the Bible. This is something that we pull from all of scripture together. And there are many points in scripture where uh, scripture speaks of itself in very amazing ways and authoritative ways. And so today, I want to bring us to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is not of, here's the five ways you read your Bible. But it does talk about how God reveals Himself from the heavens to us. Not only in the form of the Bible, but also in creation. And how it then impacts the heart of the believer. I listened to Alistair Begg preach a sermon on this and. He, saw it, he, he mentioned it this way. You have to look up to the heavens, then look down to the Word, and then look in to the heart. And so we see that. Creation, the Bible, and the heart right here in Psalm 19. So I want to read this chapter in its entirety and then dive into this. Psalm 19. To the choir master... A Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving His chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, I pray now that your word just impact us. Even in the the plainness of reading. Father, the, the richness and the depth of this is so vast. I won't even be able to but just scratch the surface of it today. And so I pray that just however you would use me, you would illuminate what it is you need us to see and hear. But God, make us hungry and desirous for you. I ask and pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And so we see the glory of God proclaimed through creation. If we recall back to Genesis, we see that in the beginning, God spoke. 
right? In that void, in that darkness, in that nothingness, out of it God speaks. And from that nothingness came everything. And the heavens were created, and the heavenly beings were created, and then the earth and everything therein. God created the day, He created the night, He created the plants, He created the animals, and the most magnificent creation of all is men and women made in His image and His likeness. But all of them created, not by His hands, if you will, but by the very word of His mouth. And what is unique about creation? God simply spoke and it became. He he also declared that it was good. Creation endured also the, the fall as well. Adam and Eve came in. God spoke to them words, do this, don't do that. And it was that word that they didn't believe, if you will, and disobeyed. And as a result, sin came in, crept in, affected all humanity, but not all, only humanity, but all of creation for all time. And it was in that moment that God could have wiped everything out, destroyed it all, but He didn't. He kept and sustained His creation, even a sinful, broken, fallen creation, because He had redemption in mind. He had set forth from the beginning, before creation even existed, that Jesus, the Lamb slain, would come and save sinners. So creation testifies to something that is coming. You see this throughout Scripture, how God uses creation to tell a story. And it's a paradox. It's not like the sun and the moon and the mountains and the rivers are giving very explicit, direct words to us that we understand in plain language, but they are speaking to us in a unique way. The waters we see remind us that God hates Sin, we see this in Genesis 6 when He floods the earth. We see that the rainbows stretch across and declare in the heavens that God made a promise and He will not destroy everyone again. The stars reveal to Abraham that a promised seed and offspring is coming. The stars in the sky also show Joseph, his position as Savior over the family of Israel. The Red Sea is divided and parted, showing God's willingness to save His people from their enemies and then to fight for them diligently. And He also uses His creation to um, enact judgment. You see this on Korah and his rebellion and the earth splitting open and, and Korah and his people falling in and God swallowing it shut just like He did the sea. And the mountain that Israel stood before in the Exodus would be covered in clouds and lightning in a very magnificent sort of way that even if an animal touches the mountain, they would be struck dead. And you see this also with Jonah falling into the ocean, being thrown into the ocean and swallowed up by a large fish. God uses His creation. His creation is eagerly awaiting groaning, desperately groaning for the redemption of God's people. Jesus even tells us in the New Testament, if you don't say anything, the rocks will cry out. So creation is longing. And again, without a word, Psalms, Psalm 19 says that the heavens speak. 
Meaning, it's not they spoke one time, but the way that this language is set up is that it's continuous speech. It's continuous action. People are coming and going, but the sun is still going, the moon is still going, the earth is still rotating, the trees are still growing, the mountains are still there, the river's still flowing. All of them are continually testifying to God's glory. They are proclaiming His handiwork. They are pouring out speech. They are revealing knowledge. Meaning we are beholden to majesty. The craftsmanship of God's hands. How He can so intricately design people and mountains and rivers and oceans for an atmosphere to, to sustain us in life on this planet. I mean, just it's amazing. right? When we travel the world or we go on hikes or we see unique places, we are often our, our breath is taken away at what we're beholding before us. We see how big creation is, how small we are, and how magnificent God would have to be. And the fact that He can pay such close detail to the beauty all over the planet, all at once. It is speaking to us. It is informing us. I mean, Romans 1 is probably the most explicit that creation testifies in and of itself that there is a God and that there is judgment. And so we can't just behold to the excuse of, well, I didn't have a Bible, so I didn't know. <laughs> David's poetic writing here is beautiful. It's like a wedding in his talking about creation, about God revealing himself. The sun speaks to us this word. The sun, it's like a kingdom in that he has set a tent. The heavens are perfectly positioned for the sun. The sun rules the heavens. And then the sun like a groom. Like a bridegroom on wedding day. Rising with majesty. Eagerly seeking to spread His rays of sunshine upon His bride. Upon all of creation. He's like a warrior. A strong man. Holding steady Day in and day out, the sun is never burning out. It's never fizzling out. It is constantly there. And like a prophet, the sun is. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing is hidden from its sight. All is exposed. So there's nothing hidden about God. God is not just hiding in a box somewhere. We're wondering, creation is explicit, showing us these things of our God. But the key is, how are we seeing creation? Because <laughs> there's a wrong way to see creation. When you look at creation, even the sun rising this morning, even as the snow was falling the last few days, and it was beautiful, right? The ice all over the trees. I walked outside and my kids go, whoa, it's a winter wonderland. <laughs> Does that not do something to us, Right? So what do you think it says about the Lord when you behold these things in creation? Have you not been looking at the handiwork of God? You've just been quick to pass it by. Oh yeah, it's just the sun, it just rises. Oh yeah, it's the mountains, whatever. Right? We quickly can become bored of things. As though, yeah, whatever, it's not that impressive. But maybe... We've been ignoring. Maybe we need to pay more attention 
Because there is the warning that we could look at creation and be so captured by it that it becomes our God, becomes our idol, right? That's all we long for. That's all we desire. We just want to travel and see and go and just love the earth and just bow down to the earth in every way. And we see that warning essentially exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I mean, if we think the sunset over the Caribbean is gorgeous, how much more splendid is our God in heaven? We are seeing a sunset on a fallen, broken planet, and we are captured by its beauty. How much more our perfect, wonderful, and glorious God. So yes, God has created us essentially to be dazzled, to find, to discover, to see Him everywhere. But we must be careful not to be dazzled by the creation over the Creator. But maybe we can begin to slow down and allow the things that are created to have us think more clearly on the Creator. So David uses this language for the purpose of marveling in the Creator. So maybe we can look at the handiwork of God and allow it to remind us that God is intimately involved in our salvation. And that He has a very clear word that He wishes to speak to us all. The question is, are we listening? We're here. We are evidences of God's handiwork. And it's all around us. And so while creation speaks, it does not speak explicitly of the gospel of Jesus. It speaks definitely there is a God and we're in need of His mercy towards us, but that is merely through the mysteriousness of how creation speaks. We need, however, the proper lens through which we can see the rightness and goodness of God in all creation, and that is through the explicit Word of God, which is why David can even say what David is saying. And so we see that in verses 7-14. through 14. So we go in from verses 1-6 through six from this looking and beholding and seeing how God reveals Himself just generally in creation to now more a special revelation and how God reveals Himself in His written Word. Here it is the law or another way, just the Bible. And the law at this time was only the Old Testament, right? Only the Old Testament. Words written by the hands of Moses, generally agreed. Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, we believe historically to be penned by Moses himself. And this word explains to us, this law explains to us, not just do's and don'ts to be a good person, but who God is. Right? It's in the first, at least in the first five books of the Bible, that we learn that God is I am. That He is eternal. That He has no beginning. That He has no end. We learn about the character of God. He's not just some angry, frustrated man up in the sky. But He is kind. He is generous. He's gracious. We learn about who He is. We learn also from the law or the Bible 
our relationship to God. What does that look like? Why did God create us in the beginning? And what was our relationship like then? And now that we've sinned, what is our relationship like now? And in the law, we see even more clearly now God's purposes and plan to redeem His people, to bring them back to Himself. It's not just a rule book. It's not a rule book to make us good people. It's not how we need to look at it. It's not set in such a way to make us the best version of you. Right? How often do we see that written everywhere? It's just weird to me. If it does anything, it reveals the best version of you, which is a significantly broken and sinful person. So it's not about you, it's about Christ in you, as we sang, the hope of glory. And so this is what the Bible does. Oh, it's clear, I'm a sinner. <laughs> right? Not exciting, but then, oh, there's a Savior. The Bible is also not this place where God just beats down sinners with this intent to just condemn and condemn and condemn. But it has a redemptive aim to the law. Meaning that God has a purpose in His Word to take broken sinners and make them whole again. And so David expresses that. And understand, David only has really the Old Testament here, right? He says in verses 7 through 9 that the law of the Lord, or the Bible, if you will, is perfect. It's perfect. It's reviving the soul. It makes us wise. It causes rejoicing in the heart. It enlightens the eyes. It causes us to endure, and it is enduring forever. It makes us righteous altogether. And this law is desirable and even reveals sin as we get into 10 through 14. And so here, David doesn't have Jesus dying on the cross, resurrecting from the grave. That's not the story at this point in the life of David. But even still, he says this is what God's Word does because he knows the trajectory of where God is going in His Word. How can these things be to David? How can they be these things to David? I mean, think about it, right? Think about it. David committed adultery. He looked upon a woman. He invited her to himself, committed adultery. And he committed adultery, and then he committed murder by murdering the woman's husband so that he could be off the hook for what he did. And ultimately, he cursed himself. And he cursed himself, really, according to the law. And his sin was then exposed by the Lord in 2 Samuel 12. And as a result of his sin, his child dies. And his other son, Absalom, turns against David and becomes one of his greatest enemies. So you're going, okay, David, how, how can you say all these things about the Word of God if you're just a big giant mess up, right? I mean, how many of us are thinking that same thing? I am a big, giant mess up. I 
am an adulterer. I am an idolater. I am perverse. I am wicked. I mean, there's nothing good about me. As Reformed people, we're really good at talking about how depraved we are, right? But we also need to begin to refocus and not just sit here and think about how depraved we are, because that just leads us to depression and an inability to rejoice. We have to begin to refocus on how good our God is. And this is what David does. Because if you get into 2 Samuel 12, not only was David essentially condemned for his sin, but we then see that David's sin was forgiven. It was forgiven by God. The law revealed his sin. The Bible revealed his sin. The Word of God revealed his sin. And it led him to repentance because it showed him ultimately the holiness and the righteousness of God. So be honest. When we all measure ourselves up to the holiness of God, all of us are scum of the earth. All of us are filthy rags. Not one of us, I would say, is any greater or lesser of a sinner. We're all equally dead in our sins. But we can't just focus on us. We must focus on Him because He tells us who we are by His righteousness and His character, His Word. And so the Bible is perfect. Consider what it does to your soul when you know God's Word, when you understand it. It does revive you. It does give you wisdom, causing rejoicing, enlightening. You see God's Word endure through the ages. You think this is the first time the church has ever ran into conflict in 2020? It's been over 2,000 years of conflict, year after year after year. And while the church has been going up and down, wondering what to do next and flopping all over the place, the Word of God has stayed true and steady and has not changed. It is good. It is right. I think the times that the Bible becomes not a discipline for us and even boring is when it, we find it bristling against our flesh. We know that we have to be honest about our own flesh, our own hearts, when God's Word is opened up to it. And I'll be honest with you, I've had moments... I'm not sure if they were in 2020. You know what? I can't remember that far back. And I know 2020 is a few days ago, but there's been so many things. It feels like a decade. But there's been times in my life where I've said, God, I don't even want to talk to you. I don't even want to be near you. I don't want to open your Bible. I honestly can't stand what it is you're going to have to say to me. But I knew it was right. I knew I had to press into him. Because I knew he was going to shape me. And my ego and my pride were going to be put in check. And I don't like my ego being messed with. Or my pride being messed with. Or being counted as wrong in anything. But consider David's life. How he sinned. I mean, he was the king. All eyes on David. In every way imaginable. And God's word exposed his sin. In fact, God told David that his 
sin would be completely exposed for all the country. Now think about it. It's been exposed for millennia. It is part of the Word of God. Thank God that our journals that we keep under our bed and we're like, oh my God, I hope nobody reads this, has not become the inspired Word of God. But for David, it has. But even then, he's not condemned. He's free. So you may be suffering from truly living in life because you've just failed to turn to God's Word and deal with your sinful heart and, and repent. You're just super stubborn. You're unwilling to move from whatever position it is or whatever. I know with certainty there are folks within our church who are still yet to repent of sins and they are convinced they can muscle their way through the storm. I got this. I can handle this. I don't need your help. But here's the warning. You will crash really, really hard the longer you try to muscle through these things on your own, apart from God's Word, apart from God's people. Don't be like Tyson, who thought he could muscle through life and get everything he needed, all the money, everything, and think he's truly living. I don't think he's truly living. He's still wrestling with demons. Don't allow your blessings in life, whatever they may be, to fool you to think that you are really living in freedom. If your life is contrary to the Word of God, you are not free. No matter how many nice things you may have around you. And here's the thing. God's Word in some ways can be like a hammer. (laughs) But it's also a gentle hand. Gently, mercifully, compassionately bringing us to repentance. The war, church, is not us and God. We're not warring with God. The the real issue is the, the warring of the pride of our own hearts. We're just unwilling to submit to the Lord and to just give it to Him. And so, in the infamous words of John Piper, we must make war. And we must make war against the pride of our own hearts to be in God's Word even when we don't want to be in God's Word. And the Word of God reveals to us forgiveness. That we are forgiven. And it maps out for us what repentance is. And so today may be the day that you need to repent of really any lingering sin that is in your heart. And I would say, do not delay in it. We will have communion. Do not delay. And so the law of God reveals to us there is a a longing for God to speak again. Like He did in the void of creation and to bring about a new creation. A new creation that would be able to perfectly come to life through His Word, no longer being condemned only as a sinner. There are the glimpses of hope that people like David saw when he was able to repent and rejoice in God's forgiveness. David knew there was a greater hope than condemnation that would come after him. And so we see not only God revealing Himself through creation, but also revealing Himself in the Word I want to take us now that God reveals Himself 
fully in Christ Jesus. Neither creation nor the law itself are sufficient enough to save sinners. They're not. Creation did not save Abraham in the book of Genesis, yet he was declared righteous for his belief. The law did not save David, yet his sins were forgiven. If you fast forward in the time of Jesus, living in the time of Jesus did not save the Apostle Paul, yet he would soon become radically transformed. So what was it? What was it that would make men like Abraham, who lived before the, before the law was even written on tablets of stone, and men like David, who lived after the law was written in tablets of stone, and men like Paul, who lived in the time of Jesus, make them sure of their salvation? Because they all live in different times of biblical history, right? And here it is. Faith. Faith in Christ. This is what Hebrews 11.1 1 talks about. Faith being the assurance of things hoped for. All the Old Testament, all the faithful of the Old Testament were hoping for something greater. Abraham was promised an offspring. And that offspring would ultimately be realized in Christ. And David knew that the offspring promised to Abraham was also promised to him. 2 Samuel 7, if I'm not mistaken. That after David, there would be one who would sit on his throne forever talking about the Messiah. And Paul sees in the New Testament that it is Christ who perfectly fulfills the Word of God. And so the Word, Jesus, He was made flesh. He was the perfection of the law, the promised seed of Abraham, the promised King of David, who would sit on the eternal throne. He is the image of the invisible God that the Apostle Paul writes about. Faith in Jesus is the end, the hope for all sinners for all time. And so let us consider then how Jesus is the perfect Word. How He is the perfect fulfillment even of Psalm 19. Jesus is the Creator. He's the Creator. Colossians 1 tells us that God created through Jesus, the image of the invisible, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, by Jesus, all things were created. Created through Him and for Him. In Him all things hold together, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This means that Jesus authored, was a part of authoring creation with the ultimate purpose of redemption. He designed creation so that it would continue to tell the story of what it is He would do. He is, Jesus is, the visible glory of God. The perfect glory of God. The evidence of God's handiwork. Pouring out speech about the Gospel that would save sinners. Revealing knowledge that only faith in Him truly saves. He is the Word by which the Father now speaks to His people in the former days, the prophets, in the latter days, His Son, Jesus. And so creation without a Word has been kept under the rule of Jesus and holding out an eager expectation and guarding 
for the redemption of men, for the revealing of the sons of God. This is also why I would say God calls creation good in the beginning. Creation now speaks to us a better word. Jesus comes establishing His kingdom. Jesus is the groom. He is the bridegroom. He is the son of righteousness, as Malachi 4 says, rising above over His bride, coming to shine upon His bride, serving, saving His bride from their sins. And He is the warrior. He is the victor. He is the one who took on sin and death on our behalf. And He is the perfect prophet revealing all darkness by the light of His glory. And He is the perfect fulfillment of the law. In every way imaginable, He fulfilled all the Psalms, all the prophets, lived a righteous, perfect life, lived a life we could not live as a perfect human being. In Him were the fullness of the Ten Commandments and in fact, the entirety of the Old Testament. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And Jesus reveals, just like David's sins were revealed, our need of Him. He rises up desiring to be with us. Desiring to be our groom. Willingly coming for us. Crossing the tracks into the bad part of town. Rescuing us from the slums. And bringing us to Himself. Look, if you're moved, stirred in your heart just by hearing these things about Jesus, do you understand that you can be moved and stirred by these truths every single day? You understand, I didn't glean these truths just from my own brain or just looking at creation, but by opening God's Word. How do we know anything about the Gospel? How do we know anything about Jesus? How do we know anything about salvation except through God's Word? And you have a direct access to this Word every single day. This has not been so in most of church history. Only in the last several hundred years have we become more of a literate society and having as much access to the printed Word of God. But now we have it. Look, until we reach the other side, we've got to constantly and consistently fight to hear, to know, to believe God's Word. That was the original problem, the original sin. God spoke to Adam and Eve, and they did not obey. And so, ever since, God's redemptive plan was to win His people back over by His Word. His Word will overcome our disobedience. And He's done that through His Son, Jesus. And so we have to be continually reminded that Jesus did all the work. He did all the work. And we simply have to believe and live out our belief. We we can only do that through the Word. And so the Bible constantly reminds us, stop trying to work to earn your salvation. 
but believe rather in the work of Jesus who provided for you your salvation. And so today is the day I think we commit ourselves to making God's Word a priority in our lives, in our home, in our workplaces, among our gatherings. Let's not just say we're about Jesus, but let's be about Jesus even in our actions. Because listen, this is what the lost and dying world even needs to see around us. That we are about God and His Word. They don't need another strategy to get wooed into a service. Like we need more lights and more smoke and more whatever to, to get people in, to attract them in. That Look, what you win them with, right, is what you got to keep them with. That doesn't keep people in heaven. But God's Word does. It changes them. So let's show the world around us that we possess something that nothing in the world can actually offer. And so now that we have seen really kind of how God, more at a cursory level, if you will, how God reveals Himself in creation, reveals Himself in the Word, and ultimately, perfectly reveals Himself in His Son, Jesus, the Word made flesh. The question is, do you want to know Him and be like Him? Do you want that? Do you desire that? Nobody here can desire it for you. We all have a responsibility to follow through, not quench the Spirit, and seek after Jesus. And so if that's you, I want to give you some tools that can help you, a lot more practical, on how to read your Bible, really beginning the new year. And so, our leadership, at least, on, um, we, we have committed together that we are going to go through a Bible in the year plan, Okay? And so I want to invite all of you to do that with us. You need a plan. We all have to have a plan. If we just do the, hey, I'm going to wake up and just do a random page and just see what God tells me, that's not going to work for us. That's not a really good discipline. We need to have some focused discipline and plan to systematically work through things. It's just how we are as creatures. So we provided a tool out at the connections table, a hard copy of a plan of, chapters of the Bible that you would read every single day, and it would take you through the Bible in a year. So you need a plan, but the planning isn't just also the Bible reading plan, but it's also you need your time. When are you going to do this? Um, If you're in a family, you need to discuss this with your family. What is mommy's time, daddy's time, or whoever else, the kid's time in the Word look like? And do what we can to protect it. Make a plan. Don't be rigid about it, because plans can shift and change, right? But if you're a family, you need to also have a plan for your family. What does it look like to worship together as a family? To read Scripture as a family? Because remember, one of the spiritual disciplines is that it's not just personal, but it's corporate. And so we have a responsibility in our home to bring the Word into our home. So what does family worship look like? One thing I'll say is that as you're reading through your plan, If the Spirit stops you, don't feel so pressed to have to get through every single chapter in that day. Allow the Spirit to speak to you. Journal. Write it down. Because part of the goal is also meditating. Listening to God's Word and really capturing it and understanding it. Okay? 
And I would say meditation, just like we see at the end of Psalm 19. Meditation is this kind of ongoing grumbling, if you will. Right? It's like, are you talking to yourself? Are you okay? Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm just talking the Word of God. Right? That's kind of the idea of meditation. Because not all of us have the luxury of just sitting down and reading the Bible every single minute of every single day. And so meditation is us taking that Word of God with us. So when as we're reading, okay, we're not just reading just to get through it, just to say we did it, but we're reading to really internalize God's Word and have it do something in us. So we need to be thinking about it. Whatever God feeds us that morning, we eat on it all day long. Next, don't go at this alone. You need accountability, but not just accountability. You need somebody to talk about God's Word with. Hey, this is what God said. This is extremely difficult. I don't get what this means, right? There was some things I was playing on the audio Bible the other day in front of my children. I quickly stopped because there were three things about, oh gosh, there's children in the room. There were things that were said. I was like, eh, I don't feel like discussing these right here. So I moved on. But there's going to be those things you're reading in the Bible going, I don't understand what this is. What does this have to do with Jesus? And you need to have that conversation. <clears throat> and kind of the last thing I want to say. When you're reading, consider these questions as you're reading. I know the women's ministry and the men's ministry have provided um, like uh, inductive methods to reading the Bible. Those are a little bit more exhaustive. Okay? Like as you're reading, it, it really forces you to slow down and to dig deep into each passage and, and, and verse. I'm going to provide you a little bit higher level in the sense of not as in-depth, but it will lead to that if you take it seriously. So first is, as you're reading, what is the passage saying? What is it saying? Secondly, what does that passage have to do within the book? So like we just did Psalm 19, right? So what is Psalm 19 saying? What does Psalm 19 have to do with the entirety of the book of Psalms? Okay? If you read Psalm 1, Psalm 1 is like an introduction to the entire book of Psalms. And so Psalm 19 is essentially um, an exhaustive uh, outworking of Psalm 1. Okay? And then, so, what does this passage say? What does it say within the book? What, is, what, did this, what does this passage have to do in the Bible as a whole? What does it have to do with the Bible as a whole? So what does the book of Psalms have anything to do with the book of, I don't know, Revelation? How does this fit into the entirety of the Bible? Okay? And the last one is, how, does, how do these passages point to the person and work of Jesus? How do these passages point to the person and work of Jesus? Talking about the person, the incarnation, Jesus becoming a man, his life, his work, Okay, or his life on on earth, and then his life, uh, and then his work on the cross and in the resurrection. So, what does it have to do with Jesus? The last thing I I was actually going to say this in the in the prior one of accountability. Some of you may have difficulty uh, reading. You may have difficulty reading. I want to encourage you to do an audio Bible 
Or if you need somebody to read the Bible to you, I want you to make that known. And we will see to it that somebody is able to just read the Bible to you very plainly. I want to make that known. Let me read this passage of Scripture and pray and be done. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He prospers. 